what we're going to begin to do over the next couple weeks is, is we're kind of getting back full in on a conversation about spiritual gifts. We've, in, in some ways, had a, a three-week reprieve about thinking specifically about spiritual gifts because we thought rather specifically about the different action words that are given that describe what love is. And it was not a major part of our focus to think about love in the context of spiritual gifts. However, that's how that passage was written. And so the fact that 1 Corinthians 13 shows up between chapters 12 and 14 uh, is significant and was the intention of Paul to outline in chapter 12 some really big broad stroke principles and even specific details about spiritual gifts to then put love in the center of it all and then in chapter 14 to return to not the entire list of spiritual gifts, but rather a couple that appear to be where perhaps the Corinthian church really, really struggled. And so in the beginning of chapter 12, you have him addressing and beginning to address spiritual people who spoke. And then in chapter 14, he returns to that idea, specifically addressing, as we'll look next week. I told you we've been punting tongues for a long time. Next week we're going to get there. Um, What he means by a tongue and tongues. We're going to step into that and how Paul even contrasts that with prophecy. So, But very specifically this morning we return to thinking about spiritual gifts, but yet we're not done quite with love. The contrast now begins to emerge fully And clearly in regards to how spiritual gifts are to be considered, how love is to be considered. And here's just the big idea. Spiritual gifts are good gifts. They're given by God to his church for the building up. But they mean nothing if they're used without love. Well, what is love? He defines then what love is. Let's try to say it another way. It doesn't matter how you serve if you don't love. It doesn't matter how you serve. It doesn't matter how great your service is. It doesn't matter how self-sacrificing your service is. If it is not done in love, it just doesn't matter. So God gives different gifts. He gives different places gifts are used. He gives the results That take place when the gifts are used. We learn in chapter 12 that I don't get to look down on myself because my gift might be different. I need to remind myself I'm needed. Like I need to be here. You need to be here. That when you're not here, the body's not all that God intends for it to be because he's uniquely given you something that the rest of us need. And So don't downplay your gift. Don't downplay your age. You might have a different role, but God has sovereignly gifted and placed you in the spot that he has for you to build the body. So we don't get to look down on ourselves. Oh, I'm too old. I don't don't have anything to offer. I'm too young. I don't have anything to offer. I'm whatever you fill in the blanks, whatever it might be. But we also learn in chapter 12 that we don't get to look down at each other. Because of the gifts. See, I don't get to say to you, you're not needed. 
No, you are needed. You might have a different role, but you're desperately needed. God's gifted you to be needed. We're a part of this sovereignly composed and arranged body of believers, and God knows what he's doing. So you and I are called to engage. We're called to be humble. We're called to give honor. We're called to be obedient. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be here. And be a part of this north star, this target of glorifying God by being disciple-making disciples. And so Paul in chapter 13 then walks through and gives definition to what actually is love. If it doesn't matter what gift I have, if it's without love, then what is love? And he defines that. And there, beginning now in the second part of verse 8 in chapter 13... He's going to give some attention to just a couple of the gifts. It's not the full list of gifts. When he started chapter 13, he listed five out of eight from chapter 12. He, here he whittles the list down to three, and then it goes down to two, and then it goes down to one, actually. And then in chapter 14, he really just focuses on two gifts that seem to have some predominance in the Corinthian thought and... What it is, is that here as we just continue, we're going to see that tongues and prophecy will get a lot of attention. They actually get a lot of attention in chapter 14. And knowledge, we'll see, is the goal of both of those. Because we need to think about the Bible. We need to think about truth. And God gives the gift of knowledge to certain people to help us connect those dots, to unpack what it is that he has said. And so as we wrap up love and think about it now specifically in the context of gifts, those are the three gifts that he highlights. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And like I said, he's going to whittle the list down So before we go any farther, let's pray, and then we'll hop into the text. We'll try to make some sense out of it and ask ourselves, what exactly does that mean for us today? So would you join me? Well, God, to that end, we do pray and we do ask that you would be our teacher. That your spirit would do what it is that you tell us in your word, that he does, that he would reveal truth. That he would lead us into all truth. And so, God, we pray that. We ask for that. We pray that he would be free in this room to to just reveal truth to us, to help us understand what it is that you've said, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that believe. And God, give us a desire to obey what it is that you've said. God, we just pray that you would just come and meet with us in a special way. That we may understand more of who you are, who Jesus is, and in turn would seek to be more like you. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, let's go to verse 8 of chapter 13. We ended in verse 8 last week, but we're going to pick up in verse 8 this week. And it's because verse 8 gives us kind of the pickup. 
And we're going to see the contrast emerge as we look there. Paul writes, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. There in verse 8, you see what we looked at last week is the end of our section on love. Love never ends, but the words as for give us then the contrast that he's introducing. So love never ends. And as for, let's think now in contrast, love and gifts, Paul has a few things to say about their end. The three that he hits on, as we already have briefly thought through, is prophecies, it's tongues, it's knowledge. They're going to end. They will not always remain. So the gift of prophecy has a time limit. The gift of tongues has a time limit. The gift of knowledge has a time limit. Now that doesn't mean that knowledge itself has a time limit or an expiration date, but the spiritual gift of knowledge, that being God giving certain people the gift to help others understand biblical truth. Because there will come a day when what's partial will no longer be because we'll be experiencing what is perfect and complete. Let's try to give some definitions. Some of these will be a reminder for you, but this will also set us up for next week and what we think about what it is the gift of tongues is. But for prophecy, you have the proclamation and explanation of God's word. Now, several weeks ago, I added to that 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 sometimes includes the spontaneous Holy Spirit wrought work of It was unplanned, but he brought it to mind, and it's an explanation and proclamation of his word. Okay, so I didn't put that on there because, quite frankly, I didn't have enough space on the slide. Um, But there you have, then, the gift of tongues, the speaking of a known language unknown to the speaker. I don't think we need to be real complicated in our understanding of what the gift of tongues would be. Here's probably the best way that I've thought through just describing it from a personal encounter. When I was in China, if I had all of a sudden been filled with the Holy Spirit to speak Chinese, that would have been the gift of tongues. It didn't happen. It would have been really cool if it had, but it didn't happen. And I had to work real hard at remembering a few Chinese words so that I could communicate in very simple words or sentences 
And one time we were on our way to a mall to go get something to eat. We had been in country about a day and a half, had slept about a half day of that. Jet lag was everything you'd expect it to be flying halfway across the world. And I just remember repeating the name of the mall over and over and over and over and over in my mind so that if we got lost, I could ask somebody in their language where the mall was. What happened? We got lost. I ended up asking a soldier with an automatic rifle standing post on the sidewalk. They don't do that in America. And he just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said what I had memorized to say. And he just kind of pointed. And we understood. We're to walk that way. All right. So tongues is just speaking a known language unknown to the speaker. Knowledge is learning and studying the scriptures. It's that ability to connect the dots. It's the ability to unpack what God has said. God has given certain individuals the ability to make sense of the scriptures, and it's a gift. Now, all of us are called to learn the scriptures. It's not that the rest of us, maybe, who don't have the gift of knowledge get to check out. But he he gives the gift of knowledge to some that they can build up the body. They can benefit the body. And so we see in the text that love never ends, but these three gifts, perhaps tongues and knowledge being the ones the Corinthians thought were the greatest, Paul seems to, in chapter 14, say that actually prophecy was a pretty big deal and rather to be what we would put our focus on. But he just says, look, love never ends, but these things, these things will prophecies are going to pass away. That word pass away means to come to an end or no longer be in existence. And Paul writes that verb in such a way that he indicates somebody's going to do something to the gift of prophecy. It's going to cause it to expire. Tongues will cease. That means to just come to an end. They're not going to be needed any longer. Knowledge is going to pass away. See, the the big idea here, the big arc that we need to not miss is that love doesn't end, but spiritual gifts will. And as good as the gifts are, as important as the gifts are, as much as the gifts are needed, they will not endure for all time because they have a limited function and purpose, and there will come a day when they are no longer needed. One scholar wrote this, that the verbs that Paul uses makes clear that these gifts don't flow into something else. They're not like a ramp feeding onto a superhighway, they're a dead end. In eternity, their assignment will be finished and they will be scrapped as functionless. There's not going to be a need for any spiritual gift. Paul just picks these three kind of highlight, I think in part, what the Corinthians focused on disproportionately and what he seems to think is worth focusing on, that being the gift of prophecy. The gifts are good, but if our focus is only on the gifts, we have missed the entire point of love. Love remains. Gifts do not. Regardless of what gift you've been given, what part of the body you are, You've been called to love. 
See, and this helps us reaffirm and see Paul's reaffirmation of really the entire context of chapter 12. That God and his sovereignty, at his choosing, at his arrangement, is hid, at his composition, he gives gifts. He gives the places those gifts are going to be used. He gives the results that take place when those gifts are used. And you and I are called to use the gifts he's given us faithfully and obediently, but to do so with love. And it doesn't matter how great your gift is. It doesn't matter how great you might see results from the use of your gift. If they're not used with or in love, it doesn't matter. Think about it this way. Um, let's say, for example, that, that feeding your family is the greatest. Okay, so we're just trying to paint a picture, an illustration of this. So feeding your family is the greatest. Like if you, if you have a family, you, they eat several times a day. If they're a growing family with two five-year-old boys, they want to eat incessantly. And there's a focus for us on feeding our family. You could say for the sake of argument that that's the greatest, that it remains. And so um, budgeting can help to that end. But there will come a day when you don't have to budget. Couponing can come and be helpful, but they actually expire if you don't use them. Gardening can help to that end, but eventually veggies will stop growing. And you don't budget to have awesome spreadsheets. Well, some of us do, and then the rest of you aren't impressed by them. Um, But you don't budget just to have awesome spreadsheets. You budget because there's a greater goal. Because you got to tell your money where to go so that when you go to the store, you've got money to buy the food. See, if the greatest is love, or in this illustration, feeding your family, everything else is to serve that. You don't coupon just for the sake of couponing. And again, some of you do, and you just you love your coupons. But it does have a goal. You garden, perhaps it's a hobby, but it's for a purpose. It's for eating. And that's the idea. Love doesn't end. Gifts serve the goal of love. We're called to build up the body. We're called to make disciples. We're called to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. And God gifts us to obey the call he's given us. But if we do that without love, we've missed the entire point. Love is what doesn't end. Love is what will endure. The gifts won't. They're going to pass away. They're going to cease because there will come a day when they are no longer needed, and yet love, in contrast, will do no such thing. And that's where Paul then begins to go in verse 9. He leads off verse 9 with the word for. That signals to us that an explanation is coming, and he's helping us think through this contrast between gifts and love. And so he explains then, this to us. For we know in part, that word in part's an important word. We're going to see that show up again, central to the argument he's making, the explanation he's giving. We prophesy in part. There's not a completeness to our knowledge. However great your, your gift of knowledge is, 
whatever, whatever the greatness of the results that come from that, it's not complete. I've got some really awesome books in my office, written by men and women who have the spiritual gift of knowledge, that have some things to say that are a tremendous benefit to the church. But it's not complete. It's only partial. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What is the perfect? We're told that what is here and now is just partial. But there's a perfect coming. There's a perfect on its way. The perfect is a word that refers to completeness. It's a word that refers to maturity. It's a word that refers to fullness. The, the, the verb comes is just a way to say when, when it takes place. When it arrives. So there's something not yet here that when it shows up, we won't need these things anymore. And I would submit to you the perfect is, it can be referred to in a lot of different ways. It can be referred to as the eternal state. That's a bit of a theological way of referring to it. I had that in in my book, an explanation of this, and the editor was like, I don't think anybody knows what that term is. You got another one you can throw in there? And so we we, we, we landed on new heavens and new earth, Revelation chapter 21. If you've got your Bibles open, flip ahead there, because I just want us to read briefly what this perfect is. We can think through it in regards to just saying eternity. It's, it's fully being with God. It's being in His presence. It's the removal of sin. It's the removal of sickness. It's the removal of sorrow. It's the removal of death. It's the removal of all of these things. And it is the future for us who are believers, who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is not the future for those who have not. This is one of those hard texts that despite its glory, it reveals to us that those who don't know Jesus don't experience this. But in verse 1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I'm trying to get my mind wrapped around what a world without a beach looks like. I, I gotta believe in faith that it's better than the one we have now, but I really like the one we have now. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be as their God or be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation 21 and 22 give us a glimpse into what the perfect is. It is when God recreates what he originally created. 
Adam and Eve experienced God in the garden. He walked with them. He talked with them. He was there. And then sin broke and fractured that relationship. And then there was a, there was a, there was a separation that took place. Think through in broad strokes the Old Testament. The veil in the tabernacle and the temple separated the presence of God from the people of God. And only one person, one time a year, and only by blood sacrifice, was able to go into the presence of God because of the reality of sin. And then Jesus comes and he made his tabernacling among us. He made his dwelling among us. And when he died on the cross, that veil tore in two, signaling that God and man's relationship in Christ was going to be decidedly different than it was for the Jew and God. Our hope is that our access to God in the new heavens and the new earth is exactly what Revelation 21 and 22 say. It's the perfect. And in that moment, in that place, this new heavens and new earth, this, this sealess planet, if we kept reading, we'd even see that there's not going to be a sun or a moon. Gifts aren't needed. You don't need the spiritual gift of prophecy. You don't need the spiritual gift of tongues. You don't need the spiritual gift of knowledge because we're going to be with Jesus. We're going to be there. And like, there's, there's not even going to be sin around. We're just going to dwell together. And when that happens, these temporal things... As good as they are, and as purposeful as they are, and as, and as productive as they are, aren't going to be needed. And that's what Paul tells us in his explanation. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So think about it this way, and just the summary that he's given us thus far with the partial and the perfect, it makes sense that the perfect is not the partial. The, perf- the, the perfect is coming, the partial is here. So the perfect's not here because it is coming. I mean, this isn't earth-shattering logic here. The partial is going to pass away. It will not remain. To try to help us maybe understand that, Paul gives us an illustration then in verse 11, and he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And what, what he's saying is that there's, there's nothing wrong with a child acting like a child. There's nothing wrong with kiddos acting like kiddos. But that's not the goal. The goal is not for the maturity level of my five-year-olds to be their maturity level for the rest of life. The goal is that as they grow up into young men, as they grow up into then men who are leaders and have families and Lord willing, in, deeply invested in their local churches, that there's, there's a greater maturity in them that is not there now. 
And so he's not saying that there's anything wrong with being a child, but it's not the goal. And so here and now, he's saying, look, I, 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 I think like a child, and the, the contrast is child and maturity. It's child and manhood. The contrast is the partial and the perfect. It's what's here now that's incomplete and what will be one day that is fully complete. In verse 12, he further explains this, giving us now an an analogy. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. If you write in your Bibles and you highlight stuff, highlight the words now and then. It serves, and those words serve to show us that something is current that will not be, and something will be that is not current. There's a partial right now that is not going to remain, and there is a fullness and a completeness and a perfection that is not yet here. And so the gifts matter, but there will be a day when they don't, And love, however, never ends. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Uh, uh, The the city of Corinth was famous in the first century for bronze mirrors. I think oftentimes, and I've even said it before myself in doing a little bit more research this past week, I realized, man, I may have gotten that wrong, that we can think about mirrors from the first century as being less than our mirrors today. Like dingy, dirty mirrors. There's there's a reflection that's a really poor quality, and I don't think that's actually the case, because Corinth is famous in antiquity, which is just a really fancy word to mean what happened in a really, really old period of time. They're famous for their bronze mirrors. They were like a major exporter in the first century world of these. And when Paul refers to a dim reflection in the mirror, he's not referring to quality. He's referring to fullness. And he says, we behold indirectly or we behold dimly. It's, it's, see, it's just not complete. It's partial. So the word dim doesn't mean poor or degraded. It just means not full. Think about it this way. Looking at the picture of somebody is different than actually being with them. Is it not? It doesn't take a lot of energy and effort to think about that. Despite the great innovations of television these days, I mean, you could have a 4K HD OLED TV. I don't know what half those things mean, but you could have one, and somebody's trying to get me to buy one because I see commercials for them all the time. Despite the greatness of that, it's not the same as actually sitting down with an athlete. It's not the same as being in the room with a news anchor. It wouldn't be like going to lunch with Pat Sajak. There's a difference there. And it's not that your TV's quality is poor. It's just not complete. It's just not full. That's what Paul is trying to get us to understand. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, we have an understanding of Jesus. 
He's given us his word to understand who he is. He has not revealed everything about himself to us. But what he has revealed is what he wants us to know. And he calls us to that. And he gifts people to help us in that endeavor. But there will come a day when we will be with him forever. And we will know him as he currently knows us. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul acknowledges that Jesus right now knows him fully, but he doesn't know Jesus fully. There's a fullness that's not yet there. It's partial. It's dim, it's a reflection, it's a a really good picture, it's a high-def TV, it's good, it's probably even accurate. It's just not complete. Think about it this way, I'll give you an illustration to maybe help make Paul's illustration make sense. Think about it in regards to dating and marriage. When you were dating... You increasingly understood more and more about that person. And if dating was done right and it served its purpose, then you should have walked into marriage kind of with a full realization of what you were getting yourself into to a certain degree. But dating is not the same as marriage. And then you get married and you begin to see much more fully. Oh, I didn't know he left his socks on the floor. I didn't know she squeezed the toothpaste from that part of the bottle. I mean, those are some of the really specific things that we talk through whenever I do premarital counseling with couples. Like, who's going to make the coffee the first morning you guys are married? Who's taking out the trash? Like, let's just talk about it. Let's not just be blinded by it because there's just things you don't know. And that's part, of how the, the, it's part of the reason why there's a covenant of marriage. Because there's a commitment that says, look, I, I'm, I'm in regardless of the socks. But if and when you're dating, you don't know fully. But you grow in that fullness. And it's, it's the idea of what Paul's trying to unpack here. That there's, that there's, a, there's a partial knowledge now. It's incomplete. It's not full. It's not perfect. But it's coming. Gifts matter. They're important. But they are not final. They will not endure. They will not continue. They will not remain. However, love does. And it doesn't matter how great your gift is. Doesn't matter where you've been called to use that gift and however the world might celebrate the extravagance or the position that you might find yourself in. Doesn't matter the results that happen as that gift is used. If you don't have love, it's just nothing. So, what I want to do, I want to go back to verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13. And as the band comes forward and as they get ready to lead us in a song thinking about and reflecting on God's love for us, I want us to just revisit what Paul has said 
So I'll read, you think, and then we'll sing. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. Would you stand as they lead us?